Hi, I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, host of the new House of Works Now podcast. Every week, I'll be bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous developments we've seen in science, technology, and culture. Fresh episodes will be out every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and everywhere else that fine podcasts are found. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And the last podcast episode we did, we talked about the comfort women's system in Japan during World War II. And I feel like when it comes to World War II in particular and uh, sex slavery, rape and prostitution, that Japan and comfort women get most of our attention. And Mm -hmm. there is a misconception that it was really isolated to that part of the world. Mm -hmm. But once we started doing some research on war and prostitution and looking at, huh, did did anything like this happen with the Allies during World War II? We ended up in in quite a rabbit hole, friends, (laughs) um, of... Learning about how, when it comes to the military, the U.S. military and prostitution, it's really as American as apple pie. Uh, yeah. And while I knew this on a surface level, yeah, I had never taken this much time to really fully understand how war and rape and sex work, Mm -hmm. whether it is coerced or not, how inextricably linked they are, Mm -hmm. how in so many ways, like women who survive wars are nonetheless the casualties of war. Yeah, without a doubt. And I mean, we could do, you know, 15 or 30 episodes about this, about wartime prostitution stretching back through the dawn of freaking time. Uh, But we... We opted to limit ourselves. Yeah. So we're going to this this episode is going to focus on the United States from the Civil War up to World War Two, because we're going to come full circle and end up back in Japan. And one thing that jumped out to me really quickly, Caroline, when we first started reading about uh, this issue and even with contemporary stories per- focusing on the U.S. military and especially military contractors who are, are still stationed in South Korea and the sex trade associated with that. Even those would just have these blanket statements as a given about how, you know, the U.S. military and sex and prostitution have always been, you know, inextricably linked in order to keep morale up and in order to keep soldiers happy. And, it makes sense. But at the same time, I was like, this was in none of my history books. Why am I just now learning about this in detail? Oh, so many reasons why it's not in your history books. Of course. But I mean, it goes back to it echoes for sure what we talked about in our episode on comfort women about this like underlying assumption that boys will be boys and we need to both support and control their like sexual appetite in a in an environment where, uh, you know, they're going to do it. They're going to either rape or have sex. So we better at least set up a system where we can keep an eye on them. Well, and it's the whole thing of women being the spoils of war. Right. Too. Um, and we, we do need to make an important distinction at this point between you know, what we're going to talk about, which has more to do with sex workers and voluntary prostitution in these cases compared to sex slavery that was happening with the comfort stations in the Japan where women were literally lied to, kidnapped, et cetera, and, and forcibly coerced into those comfort stations. But at the same time, too, you can't get away from the fact that a lot of the reasons why these women, you know, who were servicing allied soldiers, the reason why they were doing it is because they were economically coerced 
Yeah, I mean, into it. I mean, you, they had no other choice. You see this in the American Civil War too, where uh, with their husbands away or dead or just not making any money during the Civil War, uh, women could make a lot more money being prostitutes, especially once and not to spoil too much, but uh, you know, especially once systems were regulated and fees were standardized and increased in in certain areas. Uh, you could make a ton more money selling sex than you could, you know, stitching uniforms. Yeah. And and sex work was nothing new during the Civil War. I mean, it was pretty common, actually. I mean, <laughs> probably to a surprising degree when we think about 19th century prudery. Um, but there was a piece we were reading from Case Western Reserve University about the this massive problem that STDs caused during the Civil War. Um, court-martial records list over 100,000 instances of sexual misconduct, first of all. Um, and the way the Army responded to this was, okay, we don't need all of these assaults happening, but, I mean, what else is going to happen? You have these guys who are young, They've grown up, you know, on farms and in small towns, and this is the first time they're really out in the war. They're, you know, hanging out, putting their lives on the line. They're drinking, like rates of drinking were really high, and they were encountering, you know, prostitutes for the first time. So, I mean, things are going to happen. I mean, this is when you first start to see this, listen, boys will be boys kind of attitude. So so what are we going to do to placate those natural proclivities as they were treated. Yeah. And so as you can imagine, with this sort of permissive attitude, that's that's like it, I feel like it echoes like I'm at college for the first time and condoms plus, don't really exist yet in a way that are plus, convenient to use. Yeah. Plus prostitutes, um, college plus prostitutes. And one of the consequences during the Civil War is that the Surgeon General of the U.S. Army documented more than 183,000 cases of venereal disease. And so, I mean, just imagine how much higher that would be if you also counted the Confederate Army. You had more than 73,000 cases of syphilis, more than 109,000 cases of gonorrhea. And I'm not laughing. I'm laughing, but I'm not. I just, like, am stupefied uh, that were treated by surgeons for the Union Army. And this adds up to a documented 8.2% of Union troops who contracted wartime STDs. And FYI, there was uh, this assumption by the white leadership that black soldiers um, surely had much higher rates of STDs. So they were considered kind of more more of a liability. But in fact, um, both alcoholism and STD rates among sol- black soldiers was way, way, way lower than uh, the white Union soldiers. Just a, just a side note there. Um, this case, Western Reserve University piece we were reading also cites a soldier's letter home to his wife um, complaining that you would think that there was not a married man in the regiment. And there was... <laughs> oh, a, heaven. Yeah. And then there was another soldier who wrote home complaining of the pox and the clap. I mean, this is just this is just a part of, you know, a soldier's life. You get the clap and then you die. <laughs> <laughs> well... The Army wanted to prevent that as much as they could. Uh, between 1863 and 1865, VD was so out of control in the Union Army that the government started sanctioning prostitution outposts in the lovely hamlet of Nashville, Tennessee, which had fallen to the Union in 1862, and in Memphis. And these outposts included regular STD checkups, for the women? Oh, thank goodness. It's not like, again, they were treating, you know, colds and coughs, though. They were mainly concerned about what was going on with STDs. But here's the thing. So this is where we get into the issue of uh, these sex workers being there voluntarily. And um, they were actually like, all right, cool. I'm I'm down for some, some medical care, for some health care. <laughs> Thanks, Obama. <laughs> um <laughs> 
So the way this whole thing went down was that General George Spaulding, who was essentially just like one, you know, notch below uh, Ulysses S. Grant, came down to Nashville, where all these Union soldiers were. And there had already been like it wasn't necessarily legalized, but there was Smoky Row in Nashville, which was the their known kind of red light district. And the Union soldiers were up to no good, <laughs> hanging out in Smoky Row all the time, contracting STDs, which I mean, the STD problem wasn't so much moral prudery, but an issue of just downtime. I mean, you would you would you were out like you couldn't fight if you ended up contracting an STD and had to get it treated. Um, so he's like, OK, what am I going to do? This is a bad situation. Oh, I know. I'm going to try to, like, ship all of these prostitutes out of Nashville. I'm just going to, like, round them up and get them out. And there was even, like, a newspaper announcement on the day that, like, all of the sex workers were put on the train. Oh, I mean, the press followed the press followed that boat. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious. Oh, it was a boat. Excuse me. I said a train. Oh, no, no. <laughs> it was a boat. They put those women on a riverboat. It was a brand, this, this guy's brand new riverboat, which he'd bought, you know, to be a riverboat. Uh, but, uh, what's his name? Spalding was like, yeah, cool. Here are a bunch of prostitutes. I believe there were 111 plus some children. And the press followed this with such glee. They reported. And I'm, I'm, I hope when you're imagining this with me, please have some Benny Hill music playing in your head as well, because the boat at each stop was turned away. So just picture this as the boat is going up the river up north and they're like, we'll just get rid of them in Cincinnati. Nope. Cincinnati turns them away. They like every stop up the river. These cities, even though they themselves undoubtedly had prostitutes working within their city walls. They were like, we don't want your prostitutes. We don't want to be known as the city that accepted the riverboat of prostitutes. And so, you know, the women aren't happy, right? The liquor ran out on day two. Uh, they're stuck on this boat. They don't get Bravo, so they can't watch <laughs> Real Housewives. I mean, come on, people. And the crew, there was a crew of three men for all of these women, plus some kids. And finally, I think it's like they left in August, August in the South. Ugh, they left on this boat in August. By October, they literally stayed on the river through the fall. In October, they have to come back to Nashville. Yeah. Because the dude's like, guys, my boat is destroyed. Like, love the ladies. Everything's great. However, the boat never recovered. This guy didn't get... Uh, compensated for his destroyed boat until after the war. He spent the entire war like writing letters like, um, dear sirs, please, my boat is destroyed. Uh, and when he finally did get compensated, he was like, I can't, I can't use this boat for anything else. It was and will remain a floating whorehouse. Well, I'm not so much concerned about the boat's well-being, <laughs> but the yeah. inhumane and unsanitary conditions these women had to live in because clearly Spalding did not think this thing through. He had no real destination. He was like, just get them out. <laughs> Women are just, you know, it's just property. Just move them around. Um, so obviously that blows up in his face and he's like, oh, fine. So Spalding then goes to plan B and plan B is government sanctioned prostitution in Nashville. That's right, friends. Nashville legalized prostitution during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So uh, with this, he was like, OK, prostitutes, you can stay, but you have to get licensed for five dollars for five dollars. And with that licensing, you have to get a medical checkup um, to screen you for any STDs and treat them if you got them. And we're going to regulate this whole thing. And the money was actually pretty good. You have sex workers from the north actually coming down to Nashville being like, hey, I want some health care. Yeah, I'll, I'll go to Nashville. Um, and at least from the reports that we read, these women were like, this is pretty good. We're mm -hmm. actually being treated like employees and not just property. So um, we don't we don't really mind this 
too much. And the Surgeon General, who helped hatch this plan, really patted himself on the back as well because he was like, you know what? I mean, yeah, it's still prostitution, but at least our STD rates are under control. So, I mean, this is this is just one instance of how this happens. Now, of course, after the Civil War, prostitution is shut down. They're like, okay, nope, okay, now we got to pull the plug. Smokey Row, you gotta you gotta clean up your act now. Yeah, and I feel like it was the Surgeon General. It might be somebody else who took note of how this shift from pre to post regulation, the women were suddenly like a vision of propriety. They went from being these depraved whores in the back alleys who were dirty and and unkempt to being, you know, happy and healthy, making more money. Well, and to that point of dirtiness Mm -hmm. versus uh, cleanliness, this is also where we start to get that stigmatizing rhetoric that is still very much alive and well um, when it comes to STDs today. The idea that contracting an STD makes you dirty. Right. You know, I mean, it's just the moralizing of the whole thing and de-incentivizing it Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, the government had a very vested interest in keeping STD rates low so they could keep their military mobility high. Um, And even though, you know, not all soldiers frequented brothels, um, it was still possible for them to mail order French safes as old school condoms were called, um, along with erotic magazines and literature and pictures. I mean, they had like guys kind of who were their runners to make sure that they, whether they were going to someone in person or someone in print, that they could have their, you know, their their sexual needs relieved. So that gets us through the Civil War. And when we get to World War One, this is when we really see the rise of slut shaming STD propaganda, really reinforcing women as just dangerous, but also STDs as this dirty, dirty, shameful thing and patriotic condoms. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, STDs were still a massive problem, as you might imagine, uh, as Mother Jones reported during World War One. The Army lost 7 million person days and discharged more than 10,000 men because they were sick from STDs. Uh, things like gonorrhea, having to be laid up in bed getting treatment. Um, frequently in different branches of the hospital that were considered to have less great conditions and less great care, um, and so you lost your pay, essentially, if you had an STD and had to be in the hospital to be treated for it. And uh, trench foot, for instance, is uh, a kind of nasty disease that was really associated with life in World War One of literally like life in the trenches and how unsanitary that could get. Um, but allied soldiers were five times likelier to be admitted to a hospital for an STD than trench foot. Mm. Um, and to that point about how the hospitals were segregated, um, they were it was it was considered like a thing of dishonor if you were there for STDs. So they were like often their own dishonorable <laughs> ward. But on the upside, because this was such a problem and again, government vested interest in this, this laid the foundation for sex education, which <laughs> In the United States, again, yeah, we could still use some work. But <laughs> that was when they finally, the medical community finally started paying closer attention, being like, okay, we might need to really investigate how this works and maybe educate people about how these things are contracted and spread and what they do to your bodies and how to treat and all of that. Yeah, you know, imagine that. So there's, I mean, glass half full, Caroline, sex education. Yeah, and so... Thanks to the war, thanks to the war, because of the war, during the war, uh, suddenly you've got all of these men experiencing and using condoms for the first time. Yay. Except really for American men, because morality and the ever-present opinion among so many Americans that if you present men, women, girls, boys, whoever, with birth control or contraception options, uh, it will only promote vice and sexual deviance in some way. 
Yeah. So the government would not give American soldiers condoms on moral grounds. They were like, well, that is a bridge too far. Safe sex. Uh-huh. Instead, we're going to give them doughboy prophylactic kits. And it's it's it just it was basically a kit to treat an STD once you had it. That's it was not, like, come on. That's that, not prophylaxis at all. I know. That, um, that's post phylaxis. Yes. <laughs> Thankfully, by World War II, things w- would be a little bit better in terms of uh, the STD rates. And better is very much um, in quotes. But uh, France at the time offered a quote-unquote safe brothel for U.S. soldiers to use because the STD rate was so high. And France was like, listen, we, you know, kind of hearkening back to that system in Nashville, was like, we we mm-hmm. got a set up here, like, everyone's checked out, it's STD-free. But, of course, government officials just blanched at the very idea. Um, Germany, meanwhile, was far more liberal slash smarter. Um, they started giving soldiers condoms in 1914. And finally, in 1917, British soldiers began receiving them, uh, but mostly from volunteers and government-sanctioned brothels. So so interesting. Uh, give guys a helmet, but don't give them a condom. Interesting. So we're not giving them condoms and they're having sex with people. And somehow, though, this is the women's fault. And, you know, we see this a lot in that propaganda in the posters promoting health and safe sex and don't get syphilis, you guys. Uh, but so many of those posters, which are funny to post on Pinterest uh, and Tumblr, so many of them are just slut shamey. Oh, yeah. I mean, and the thing is, this is all about patriotism and morale. So there's no possible way that they could pin any responsibility on the soldiers themselves. So, of course, the women are the obvious targets. Um, and I mean, this this idea of women being sexual temptresses is by no means new anyway. Um, and the thing about that propaganda, which is, you know, very uh, pinnable, is that so many of the, you know, Internet posts that I see is so like, oh, winky face nostalgia about it. But it's I mean, when you really start to look at it, it's horrifying and explains so much about rape culture today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this one group, the American Social Hygiene Association, which produced a lot of these. And boy, boy, howdy. Uh, they were doozies. Um, one of their posters taglines was a girl who would yield to one man has probably had relations with another. Very likely she is diseased. I mean, that sounds just like, like a Reddit post. Oh, you know, I was just going to say that. It sounds exactly like what, you know, like a nice guy of OK Cupid would say. Um, you also have, uh, one where <laughs> I think they were trying to be kind of funny. Um, they referred to like a, a, a drawing of a, an attractive woman on a poster as a booby trap. Oh. Watch out, fellas. She's going to get you. And you also have STDs being anthropomorphized as women. Mm -hmm. So you have renderings again of like, you know, a conventionally attractive white woman who is wearing a label venereal carrier, who is like waiting around a corner as a soldier is like walking up as if she's going to pounce on him. You know, watch out, guys. You got to you got to stay away because what women love to do more than anything else is give people STDs. <laughs> I don't know if you know this about it, but uh, it's true. Um, so the whole message is like women are poisonous temptresses who cannot be trusted or women who have had sex before are temptresses. Mm-hmm. And also STDs equal dirty shame, dirty shame. Yeah. And there was this woman, Eddie Rout in New Zealand. Well, she was a New Zealand nurse in Egypt and she was like sick of all of this. It's not exactly productive to uh, have this like hand wringing moralizing over STDs and sex when you could just be treating and preventing STDs from happening in the first place. Uh, she was convinced that rather than treat STDs as like a moral failing, treat them as a medical issue, which they 
are and which they were. And so her solution was to create these prophylactic kits that were actually prophylactic kits and not like a you know, post-phylactic. Um, and they included condoms. And her solution was to create these, put together these prophylactic kits that included condoms. And she also advocated for clean brothels. And you would have thought this woman was like, advocating for just the entire world to be a nudist colony, like, let's all have orgies together. People freaked out. And in New Zealand, if you printed her name, you faced a fine. I was so surprised to read this, too, because in terms of women's rights, at least, New Zealand has been historically very progressive. Mm. Shout out Kiwis listening. <laughs> um So, I w- yeah, I was surprised to see how, how <laughs> Eddie was treated. Like, her... Yeah, her name was not allowed to be printed in newspapers. <laughs> but the French, again, were like, you guys, listen, we can do this. <laughs> um, they were super chill about it. They, of course, supported Routes' ideas about the quote-unquote clean brothels. Or I, we shouldn't say clean. That clean, dirty language is super stigmatizing. So the licensed and regulated brothels, to be more accurate, um, so in 1918, Route establishes a hygienic brothel in Paris for troops from New Zealand. Um, and you also have the French reviving that sanctioned prostitution system um, that we saw similar to uh, Nashville during the Civil War that helped keep the sex trade going on there STD free. Because here's the thing. They knew that during wartime, Women are usually destitute and have to turn to prostitution. You have that economic coercion factor. So better to keep them healthy in the process. And then we start to see some maneuvers that essentially legally and officially place blame on sex workers and prostitutes. Uh, in a move that the U.S. would replicate during World War II, Britain in 1916 made it a crime for a prostitute to solicit a man in uniform. And in 1918, it became illegal for women with venereal disease to have sex with any soldiers. And police could medically examine suspected, not actual, literal, licensed, but suspected prostitutes. Yeah, I mean, and and when it comes to British soldiers and STDs during World War One. Their most effective defense was actually cutting their wages because then they just couldn't afford to go to a brothel. Yeah. That was the only thing. It was just like if if the soldiers had enough money, they were going to go. Right. So you see during this time, Canadian and Australian soldiers who earned significantly more money than their British counterparts uh, contracting super high rates of STDs. And the poor Brits, the literally poor Brits, were kind of protected because once you bought your food and, you know, whatever other essentials you needed, it really didn't leave you much money to to go get your kicks in a brothel, licensed or not. But with all of this, you can see how, again, the sex trade goes part and parcel with warfare. <laughs> and we're going to talk about World War II when we come right back from a quick break. There's really no one quite like Nancy Conger. My mom? Your mom. And to show her how loved and special she is, Kristen, don't you think you should give her something that's unique and special just like she is? Like Sherry's berries? Yeah, and not that your mom is a delicious, juicy, chocolate-dipped strawberry, but she might appreciate them. She would absolutely appreciate it. And Caroline, I guarantee you she would say, oh, well, I kind of am. I'm pretty <laughs> sweet and delicious myself. Well, luckily right now, you and our listeners can get Sherry's Berries Freshly Dipped Strawberries starting at $19.99 or double the berries for just $10 more when they use our exclusive offer. So go to berries.com, click on the microphone in the top right corner, and type in the code HOWSTUFFWORKS. That's three separate words, HOWSTUFFWORKS. You can choose between berries dipped in milk, white, or dark chocolatey goodness, topped with rich chocolate chips, 
chopped nuts, and signature swizzles. We're talking huge, fresh, juicy, delicious Sherry's Berries. You pick your delivery date you want, and it's guaranteed, or your money back. We're talking freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99, or double the berries for just $10 more. And this is an exclusive offer for our listeners only when you use the code HOWSTUFFWORKS. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and type in three separate words, how stuff works. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and enter our code, how stuff works. That's three separate words, how stuff works. This is a limited time offer, and Mom's Day is next week, so make sure to order now. So by the time we get to World War II... At least penicillin exists. This is very good news for the treatment of STDs um, because prior to its arrival, syphilis was the fourth leading cause of death in the U.S. That's crazy. Yeah. Like beat out like only by cancer. Well, and also two other things because it was the fourth. But I mean, it was that widespread, uh, partially just because we didn't have treatments. Um so rather though than focusing so much on World War prostitution happening overseas, which it absolutely did, what we really want to talk about is the surveillance of women's sex lives on the American home front and the rise of what some people in the government called patriotutes. Yeah. This was history. Again, like, no idea. I had no idea. Mind-blowing. My mind was blown. And this is coming from a fabulously titled book by Marilyn Hegarty called Victory Girls, Khaki Wackies, and Patriotutes, The Regulation of Female Sexuality During World War II. And, geez, regulated it was. I mean, you <laughs> women could barely walk down the street because authorities were so convinced that any woman out on her own, was clearly some suspicious prostitute. And if she wasn't a prostitute yet, she probably would be. She was a walking STD. So here's a fact that blew my mind, Caroline. The U.S. government effectively established a wartime sexual support system, as Hegarty described it, in the United States, um, in and around military bases to ensure soldiers could get plenty of play but without the STDs. So you have like the closer that you get to barracks, you know, the more and more like regulated things become. Um, but also with women increasingly stepping into traditional men's jobs and roles outside of the home, a.k.a. Rosie the Riveters, this gender panic helps fuel the sexual surveillance on women on the home front. It's like, oh, man, women are leaving the home. What are they going to do next? Are they going to be like us and feel like they deserve sex all the time? And when it comes though, to that surveillance, working class women and women of color were the most scrutinized. And black men were also assumed to be vectors of venereal disease because racism. So it just, you know, layers of classism and racism intertwined with this. And again, we still have this interpretation of STDs as a moral failing rather than a biological process. Yeah. And I mean, you know, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but that's echoes and lingering sentiments from the progressive era when you viewed, for instance, poverty as a character failing. You viewed illness, sickness, any of that as something that reflected on the morality of the person who experienced it rather than an institutional or systematic problem. And so the same attitude applied to racist ideas about black people being more prone to carrying venereal diseases or, you know, poor people being dirty and wanton and not being able to control their sexuality. Well, and if you put this in the backdrop too, in an era of extreme patriotism, you know, STDs were just downright un-American, <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there's so many, so many ways that the government was trying to you know, regulate our lives to to just ensure that, you know, the soldiers stayed as healthy as possible. And in the process of this, a U.S. Public Health Service physician named Otis Anderson coined the term patriotute to both stigmatize the women in the military who were installed at USO dance halls and servicemen's clubs to maintain morale, you know, have some pretty gals around and also deter soldiers from going to prostitutes. So, I mean, this is... <laughs> 
This is a similar kind of like sexual servicing where women were, I mean, it was voluntary, yes, but women were nonetheless recruited. Mm-hmm. Attractive women were recruited to come to these dance halls, like, come dance with an old soldier before he goes off to war, gals. <laughs> Give a man a smile in the hopes that with these quote unquote good and clean girls around, they wouldn't need to go to a prostitute. But who's to say that these soldiers also were not having their way with these women, too? Yeah, but you get these weird attitudes reflected about what constitutes a good girl, a pure and clean girl, which is, again, holdovers from that progressive era attitude about true womanhood and that a true woman was a pure, chaste, white woman in the home, you know, versus like sex workers who were just they were necessary in these military men's minds. And they were often sanctioned by the military and licensed, you know, especially in Europe, as we saw. Uh, but yet we we hate them and fear them and, and call them sluts and prostitutes. Yeah. I mean, there is this whole dichotomy at work of thinking of women as sexually dangerous, particularly if they're sex workers, but also they're sexually alluring morale builders, potentially these, quote unquote, patriotutes that we can only assume have, you know, never participated in any kind of sexual exploration whatsoever. And those two things were still conflated at the same time. And Hegarty describes this mindset as sensual patriotism. It's like this the sensual sensual patriotism that those quote unquote good girls possessed versus STDs. And the USO did directly advertise for proper white girls to come. Um, but there was this fine line because that surveillance was still happening. So if you were one of those gals at the dance hall just giving a fellow a smile before he ships off If you seem to be getting a little too cozy with that soldier boy, not to be confused with the rapper, um, (laughs) the government might label you a prostitute. I had to really, like, think for that reference for a second. I know. That's already becoming a deep cut. (laughs) I'm aging so quickly. And we see this hand-wringing over women's role in the spread of VD. We see it just continue in 1944. There's uh, an author pens this piece called VD Menace and Challenge, where she, yes, she, the author, writes about the, quote, problem of the non-commercial girl who is supplanting the prostitute as the main source of venereal infection in the armed services. It is she who is in large part responsible for the increase of venereal disease in this country, as if women, like, they just sneeze and VD is just spread to these innocent, helpless men. Ooh, so much vintage slut-shaming. Um, and we also, speaking of which, like we had in World War II, we have all of that anti-STD propaganda come up yet again. I mean, and and a lot of it, too, is, I mean, funded, obviously, by the government, you have um, some of them that are, I mean, the graphic design is really cool, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. the stuff that came out of the um, uh, Works Progress administration. Um, but this just reinforced that idea of female sexuality as dangerous. So in addition to posters, you had films, including the 1942 U.S. Navy film, The Ship of Shame, which urged seamen <laughs> To, quote, put it on before you put it in, fellas. I, like, my eyeballs fell out of my head when I read that. Like, I couldn't believe put it on before you put it in was on an official poster. No, well, it was in the, it was in the video, kind of like one of those awkward sex ed videos, except it all took place on a boat. (laughs) Oh, well. The ship of shame. The ship of shame. And then you have posters with taglines like, she may look clean, but dot, dot, dot. Again, we have all of that clean, dirty mm-hmm. language going on. And then uh, this one that just got really to the point. Loose women may also be loaded, all caps, with disease. Yeah, and they were big into showing and telling because that poster had a woman winking and it also had a picture of a gun. Well, Caroline, I also have to describe um, this one last poster to you. Uh, it depicts an attractive woman sitting in an armchair and she's wearing a dress 
which of course is labeled venereal disease. <laughs> and you have. Are you, we sure that's just not her name? It's just sewed onto her dress. Venereal. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, venereal does sound like, you know, like a 1940s name. I'm yeah. just saying. Um, and she, on the wall behind her, there's a portrait of an army guy, an air force guy, and an, an a navy man, <laughs> a man in the navy. And the tagline above it is, don't be her pinup boy. You have gender role reversal, slut shaming, yeah. dangerous sexuality, everything in this one poster. Well, there were some other tactics, too. There was one poster uh, that featured a really sad Lady Liberty behind these two military members. Uh, and the tagline was like, your sister, sweetheart, or wife might not know that you have VD, but I do, and I will suffer for it. God, Lady Liberty's like God? Yeah. She's omnipotent? She, she is. And there was another poster, too, that sort of tried to play on men's shame. It didn't, it actually didn't shame women, which is mind-boggling. It was trying to shame the soldiers themselves. And it showed a wife in an armchair with two children playing on the floor in front of her. And it basically said, like, you know, I I can't believe how syphilis almost hurt my family. But in a way, doesn't that still bring shame to the wife? Because it's like, if you bring home syphilis to that woman, you're going to make her dirty, too. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's still it's you're still only seeing the women. Yeah. Being affected by all of this. This is true. I am not letting those propaganda <laughs> posters off the hook. Nor, nor should you. <laughs> um, prior to Pearl Harbor, though, the Army, Navy, Federal Security Agency, state health departments and the American Social Hygiene Association collectively outlined the eight point agreement on VD control, including the repression of prostitution and contact reporting and contact reporting uh, just means letting the informing the military who you've had sex with. And in her book, Hegarty observes these eight points mark the official start of wartime sociopolitical efforts to control female sexuality. And from there, we start to get legislation around this. Yeah. In 1941, Congress passes the May Act, which makes prostitution around domestic military bases a federal crime. We also see the establishment of the Social Protection Division overseen by FBI legend Elliot Ness to basically monitor fretfully women's and angrily women's morality. Yeah. I mean, we had talked about the surveillance that started going on before the U.S. entered the war, and it was really focused around uh, the military bases. But with this, I mean, they were blanketing the entire country, really, to kind of uproot all of those those bad girls, those women who are going to ensnare their soldiers and records from the Social Protection Division contain a veritable thesaurus of slutty descriptors that they came up with for women, including disorderly girls, vagrants, pre-delinquents, suspected prostitute, potentially promiscuous woman, possibly foolish and immoral women, non-adaptable, grass grabbers, hordes of whores, Good Time Charlottes and Patriotutes. There's old Patriotutes coming up again. Patriotutes, Caroline, was like used in official government documentation. Yeah, that's what blows my mind that this wasn't just like dismissive language that someone found in some memo that someone shot off. Like this was official language about women. And I mean, these efforts contributed to this hypersexualization of women to the point of labeling many under surveillance as prostitutes and promiscuous with the objective of socially rehabilitating them, both prostitutes and other perceived sexually delinquent women. And local officials detained and forcibly tested women identified by soldiers who had contracted STDs and reported them as sexual contacts. And whether single or married, if you were a woman alone in public, you could arouse suspicion. And for instance, in June 1942, six months after Pearl Harbor, in Oklahoma City, 900 girls and women were arrested on morals charges. That same year, during one six-month period, 
Authorities arrested 7,500 women in 15 states on morals charges. My eyes are about to pop out of my head, Caroline. Well, because what's going on is the penalization of gender, essentially. Like, if you were a woman, you were just, like, guilty. You were presumed to be guilty by association, almost. But the scary thing is, too, the power that the government gave law enforcement at the time Mm -hmm. to stop women and girls on the street, take them forcibly to a health clinic for STD testing, and who knows what happened in between all of that time, you know? Yeah, there was one case of a woman who was eating at a diner alone. Her husband was what? He was in the military, so he was away. Yeah. And they were like, oh, my God, a woman alone. They drag her off. She tests negative for any STDs. And it's like, thank goodness, because as the writer points out, if she had tested positive for whatever reason and for whatever STD, she probably would have gone to jail and been forcibly treated. So also in this cultural climate, too, this wasn't just surveillance happening among female civilians. You also have suspicion of members of the Women's Army Corps thinking that they might have been prostitutes and lesbians in disguise. I'm just like I'm picturing I'm picturing again the Benny Hill music and like all of these paranoid, insane men in the government and in law enforcement and in the military who are just in an absolute panic. Over women. They're just like seeing things. But if there were a Leslie Nope style binder of like war plans <laughs> that the U.S. used and they opened it up. I mean, this is what uh, protocol from the past wars. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's always the responsibility for this stuff is always fallen on the women and soldiers absolutely internalize the message of female sex and sexuality as patriotic benefits to their disposal. So while women are being demonized and singled out for possibly being dangerous, soldiers are also receiving the message that they should nonetheless have access to, quote unquote, clean women. Um, There's extensive military training in World War II around safer sex under the presumption that again, boys will be boys. So it's like, listen, you're going to do what you're going to do. We would prefer that you not rape anyone. And when you have sex, make sure that you don't contract an STD because that will, you know, take you out of off the battlefield. Yeah. And and we see this this I don't want to say emergence because it's more of a perpetuation and almost an amplification of both sexual bravado and hypermasculinity as almost necessary attributes to display as a military man. And Hegarty writes about this. She says, the constant attention paid to sex, including safe sex through lectures, films, pamphlets, and posters, along with the military practice of providing instruction and prophylaxis, finally, uh, created dissonance between any notion of male continence or sexual reserve in the stereotype of the virile, aggressive military male. They're getting mixed messages, essentially, about what it means to be a true man or a true military man and being responsible and practicing safe sex. And you have anecdotal reports, too, of soldiers who are about to ship out aggressively and sometimes non-consensually demanding sex with the whole thought process of, well, if I'm about to go put my life on the line, for the U.S. of A., then I deserve unfettered access to women's bodies. And, Caroline, this brings to mind Grease 2 and that scene where the guy tricks the girl uh, into having sex with him. And they sing that whole song, Let's Do It For Our Country. You know what it reminds me of? What? Like rape culture. Well, yeah. In in the world. Yeah. Um, but the government, though, Caroline, they had a solution for all of this, mm-hmm. especially, you know, for making sure that the soldiers stayed as healthy as possible, kept them all, you know, in commission. Policymakers, both military and civilians, generally agreed that male soldiers shouldn't and really couldn't be sexually restrained. Come on. And any attempts to do so would only result in, quote, rape and seduction. Again, it's like, I mean, we know what's going to happen. So as a result, 
The military considered sanctioned brothels to provide, as some people called it, a buffer of whores. That is direct language. Is is that like a murder of crows? <laughs> yes. A buffer of whores to protect the good women in the surrounding areas from would-be rapists being the soldiers. Yeah. I mean, this was we're we're not sitting here as feminists, like coming up with this narrative, people like this is what (laughs) military and government officials were putting together in their reports. These were the conclusions that they were reaching. Yeah. And what brings this episode focusing on the American military uh, full circle and meets with our previous episode's topic of comfort women and sexual slavery in, well, in Asian countries propagated by Japanese soldiers is the fact that the comfort women's system was essentially reintroduced slash never left because of the American soldiers who then came in. Yeah, once, you know, Japan surrendered, Japanese officials knew that American troops would then be coming in to occupy and that they would want sex. And kind of like that whole buffer of horrors mindset, they were like, listen, we don't want these white guys coming in and raping all of our women. So we need to revive the comfort stations. And in 2011, the Associated Press reported that American authorities were complicit in the Japanese reestablishing those brothels that did include forced prostitution and the number of American GIs who frequented them. And we should note that Americans 100 percent knew about the horrors of the comfort women system by this point. Like the government knew that that was that that had happened, but they were still like, you know what? Mm, okay, And. The official history of the Ibakari Prefectural Police Department, whose jurisdiction is uh, just northeast of Tokyo, says, quote, sadly, we police had to set up sexual comfort stations for the occupation troops. The strategy was through the special work of experienced women to create a breakwater to protect regular women and girls. Ah, those women were regular women and girls. And the ones who had experience, quote unquote, likely had experience because they had been forced into the system by Japanese soldiers during World War II. Well, and there have been scholars who have noted that with this relatively brief revival, like most of the women um, came of their own will. But again, we have the economic coercion factor. It was like they had no other choice. If they wanted to survive, they couldn't feed themselves. Yeah. So they were like, well, I need a job. Well, yeah. And again, some of them did come of their own free will. But a lot of the time, there was still that deception factor. You still had ads in newspapers saying we need a secretary and a woman showing up. And they're like, yeah, you can type some stuff, but we also need you to do this other thing. And here's money for it. So the only reason, though, that General MacArthur shut all this down in 1946 was due to concern for military chaplains who were like, hey, I don't think this is kosher. And the PR risk of anyone finding out about those brothels. And just like what happened with the comfort women who had been having to, you know, forcibly following uh, Japanese troops wherever they went, immediately those tens of thousands of sex workers were out of a job many with STDs, and thus forced to continue selling sex in order to survive. And what did the Americans do? They went home to a hero's welcome. A quarter of them with STDs. Yeah. You know, and it's and it's one thing, too, that uh, jumped out to me in reading about all of this, Caroline, is how, of course, General MacArthur would want to cover this up. You know, this would be a PR disaster for all of these white boys to be having sex with women of color. But there are accounts of Americans and other allied troops frequenting French brothels. But the portrayals of that are very like, uh, you know, kind of cheeky and romantic. It's like, oh, of course, a, a man couldn't resist a French prostitute. So oh, because it's like white people having sex with white people. And that's totally OK. And all of this kind of just makes me um, want to take a nap because it's exhausting. It is exhausting. And so I think it does shed 
uh, some interesting light and context for discussions about red light districts around bases, American bases that exist now. Um, because you do have the argument from a lot of people of like, well, they're, you know, these women are, are choosing this line of work and, uh, they're earning a lot of money doing this. They want to do it. And, you know, I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush and say no or yes either way, but I, it's hard to argue that that line of work, whether it was in the Civil War, World War I, World War II, or today around any basis, that it's entirely an issue of freely choosing that occupation because it's the thing you want to do. Yeah. There is still a big issue of socioeconomics, of what options are available to people. Um, and those are the underlying issues that we could then talk for hours and hours about. Well, and also the deception, too. I mean, some of these women are promised things and end up, you know, especially in South Korea around these military bases. Um, and it turns out that, oh, they're, they are kind of in a chattel system where they're beholden to whoever is running this brothel. So this the situation by no means is fixed and by no means went away after World War II. In fact, it only got worse um, with the Korean War and Vietnam. But with that, we now have to close things out. Um, and the big takeaway for me, Caroline, is just like how much it totally explains our sexual slut shaming and sexist culture that we still live in. Yeah. So, listeners, what do you think about all this? Was this as surprising for you as it was for us? Um, and especially interested to hear from our listeners who are in the military, because I think this also, too, speaks to the issues that uh, the military has had with sexual assault as well. So we want to hear your firsthand perspectives. As always, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can send them. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast.com or messages on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Okay, I have a letter here from Allie. She says, I started listening to podcasts a little over a year ago, and one of the first that I stumbled upon that I loved was Sminty. I have to tell you how inspiring your podcast has been for me. I went through grade school never having a teacher that inspired me or made me want to be a better person like the both of you do. I've struggled with dropping in and out of college because of not knowing what I'm passionate about, which has been extremely frustrating as an almost 27-year-old woman. It has lowered my self-esteem, especially when my fiancé and close friends have either bachelor's or master's degrees. I still have no idea what I'm passionate about and have an internal struggle with that every day. But what I want you to know is that you've stirred something in me. I'm realizing now that just because I haven't found what I'm passionate about, it doesn't mean that the passion inside me isn't there. I can feel it bubbling to the surface and have to just keep searching for the right outlet. I know one day I'll find it. This new perspective that I have is because of you and your strength and bravery to keep fighting the good fight. Thank you for being who you are. Allie, thank you for being who you are. And let me tell you, it's not unusual to not know what your passion is or how you want to direct that passion. But I'm really glad to hear that we could maybe play a part in figuring it out. Yeah, that means so much. Thank you for taking the time to tell us that, too. So I've got a letter here from Emily on school dress codes and body shaming. And she writes, I've just recently started listening to podcasts and yours is the first one I chose. Hooray. So forgive me if what I'm requesting is something you've covered in past podcasts. And Emily, you never have to apologize for that. We have over 700 episodes and I forget what we've talked about sometimes. Um, she continues, while listening to your history of sexual harassment... Something really struck a chord with me, and that was when you mentioned the relation to current student dress code policies. I've been reading a lot about these in the news lately, and I agree it's a problem. I have a four-year-old daughter, so it really worries me how I will handle this when she gets older. 
It's funny. It definitely hits on how I was raised. I was a rather endowed teen, which was not all it was cracked up to be, and I had to be careful what I wore because I didn't want to dress inappropriately, which I now understand is a really body-shaming and sexist perception. Women can't be to blame for men not being able to look at them as more than sexual objects. And of course, this also goes into the body-shaming women do to each other when someone is curvy or heavy or dressing in a way that shows off their curves or, heaven forbid, fat. So I'm just curious to hear more about this. How do I balance appropriateness and fairness while not raising a daughter that feels like she has to make things easier for those crazed men? Or is there appropriate? I already balanced this fine line when she asked me things like, Mom, why can boys go out without shirts on? Ugh. How do I balance in this emerging world of women's empowerment that I'm glad about, by the way, but I'm still trying to undo years of being raised in the old ways? Well, Emily, those are fabulous questions. And since Caroline and I do not have children, I think this is a great one. Um, parents listening, if you have any suggestions of how you have talked to your daughters in particular, but just your kids in general about dressing and what is and isn't appropriate. And um, one thing that came to mind, Emily, reading your letter was uh, the Fresh Air interview recently with Peggy Orenstein, who just came out with a book on girls and sex. And she talks about dress codes. And at her daughter's school, basically the girl's dress code is to, you have to wear clothes that you can move freely in. And I think that's a fantastic standard where it's like, if you, if you can't raise your arms comfortably or touch your toes, you know, and and worry about having to like adjust your clothes and pull it down, whatever it might be, then, then maybe find something more, more comfortable that liberates you. So maybe that will help. Um, but thanks so much for your letter, Emily, and so happy to hear that you're a new listener. And to all of our listeners, we love hearing from you as well. Again, our email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about patriotudes, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 